So here today we have special special guests because it's uh, become a, a family event. We have uh, the cousin, right, of That's Sarah, right. who was yeah. on the podcast a few weeks ago, who's a hot yoga instructor. And uh, I asked Sarah who some of her favorite, uh, you know, characters were in Chicago and especially, you know, in a world separate from yoga. And uh, she mentioned your name. So we have here uh, Andrew Duncan Biddle. Biddle, yeah. Biddle. And... Um, Where's that from, Bidolf? It's English. It's uh, it's from the Midlands in England, a region called the Black Country, due to all of the um, sort of uh, mining and pottery that occurs there. So everybody's covered in soot all the time. And it's the name of a small town just a little bit north of Stoke-on-Trent. It's a super old name, recorded in that uh, Doomsday, Doomsday book. And there's two interpretations of it. One makes more sense than the other, but uh, I, I believe it's like the the Norman interpretation is wolf slayer, <laughs> but then the Saxon interpretation is quarryman, you know, one who picks rocks out of the ground. And given given what the area is known for, quarryman is a lot more likely. Right. Okay. Well, it's good that you appreciate your uh, your background and your name to that extent. I think. And I'll uh, learn a bit from that. So you're a chef, uh, or a sous chef, or I'm, I'm not so sure. We'll find out. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. I'm yeah. the executive chef and partner at Rootstock Wine and Beer Bar in Humboldt Park. Okay. Yeah, because on your LinkedIn it says sous chef, and then uh, what Sarah uh, intro to you as is um, someone who's uh, her cousin who's started restaurants all over Chicago, currently working with Rootstock, and uh, that was kind of uh, her description. So restaurants all over the city yeah uh it started at a pretty young age like 17 when my friend's father gave me my first job at a country club in northbrook which is close um, to chicago it is it's about a 25 minute drive provided there's no traffic and that was that was an eye-opening education for a 17 year old to just get thrust into an adult's job um, and I did all of the normal stuff that like entry level employees would do, but this just happened to be food service. So I just helped other people out and tried to learn everything and not mess too much stuff up. Uh, from there, I went to work at a Chili's in Honolulu, Hawaii, wow. because I figured I had saved up enough money after working at the country club for a year that I might as well do something reckless. So I moved to Hawaii. I got a job at Chili's. It was fun, <laughs> but it was fun because only had to work uh, four days a week, and the other three I spent surfing and sleeping and hanging out on the beach with all of uh, with all of these new new friends and new people. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that was. So what did you do for? Uh, did you go to undergrad at all, or did you go straight into food? Well, I worked and worked. And then I went to culinary school. So I, uh, after the year in Hawaii, I came back. I got a job working in a restaurant in North, uh, wait, no, in Oak Park. And it was a pretty, it was a little bit of a dicey situation. It, I was I was there to make food, but the people who owned the restaurant asked me if I would be comfortable, you know, selling some weed to my friends on their behalf. <laughs> And, you know, who knows what happened there, but I, I realized pretty quick that if I wanted to keep it up, I need to, I need to choose better company. 
And uh, then I went to culinary school. So it's like a glorified trade school. It was one of the one of the predatory for profit unaccredited uh, okay. universities. But it was fun. I met a lot of good people there, and through someone I met. In culinary school, I wound up with a job at Lula Cafe in Logan Square, and that was where the where like the real education happened. Kind of like where my mind broke open in in terms of how to run a business in the right way and source food the right way and treat staff properly mm. and care for the staff and and foster friendships. And those are friendships I still have. I, I met I met some of the most important people in my life through there, and. Uh, and yeah, it, it was a it was an irreplaceable stage in my career. And after five years of working there, it was it was determined somewhat unilaterally that it was time for me to move on and travel and learn a little bit more. It was determined. It was determined. Yeah, but I would have stayed there forever, but uh, the your mentor or someone there. Too? My mentor, yeah, Jason Hamill, the the chef and owner. He was just like, man, you got to get out there and do more. So. He gave me uh, just like a great big amount of money and set me up with some connections in different places in like France and Italy. And then I set about traveling. Well, so. that's amazing. You got a little kick in the pants like to find your, your own little Anthony Bourdain moment. Indeed know? I did. Yeah. And it was, and it was great. Um, I, spent, I spent the bulk of that time in Italy. Uh, so when I got there, I pretty much crisscrossed the country by train. Uh, I took a position in a small, a thing called an agriturismo, which is like a, a hotel on a farm with a restaurant yeah. attached. Yeah. And we did that. It was a bonkers experience. It was on top of, the farm was on top of a mountain in a small community called Rocco Marice. And I think that we were something like twelve or 1,300 meters up on this mountain. And that's where they grew uh, farro, which is like a like an ancient variety of wheat. That's what wheat was hybridized from. And they grew this stuff on the slopes of the mountain and it was terrifying because we would ride up there in a, what what they're called like ATVs or mm-hmm. four-wheelers or something like that. And a lot of times there was a good deal of snow. I definitely flipped the ATV over once and no one, no one got a kick out of that. Uh, but the restaurant was brilliant. They 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 conducted themselves in the manner of a of an inn that would have existed, you know, at at any point in like history, like fourteen hundred or seventeen hundred. The name of the place was Tolos, T H O L O S, and that name was derived from these uh, like rock structures that people would erect to to build in. So it's sort of like a like a dome or a cone that they build out of rocks and it spirals up Mm. so uh, yeah dolos and it was great we did all sorts of fun stuff uh we had a lot of parties we had a lot of guests and my duties were limited to nothing i built fences and cared for goats and sheep and a donkey named nina who bit me four times (laughs) in my time there um and we made dinner for people. It would fix up the rooms and and do the bed. We we would routinely make uh, like illegal hooch, uh, not dissimilar to grappa, but there they call it distillado. So we had a little copper pot still that we would pour uh, five gallon jugs of wine into and distill it into uh, 
basically Italian moonshine. Why is it illegal? Because it's dangerous to make your own booze, and there's... More strict in Europe, too, right? Yeah, and, 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 you know, just like anywhere, when when you do something that's not necessarily sanctioned by the government, uh, it's frowned upon, so... So Italian moonshine, That's and right. you were were you were you growing there as a as a chef, or were you really just like appreciating a certain style of living that you were able to bring back? To the it States? was a lot. It was a lot different. I mean, I, you know, I've been based in Chicago my whole life. We moved around to a couple of little suburbs here and there, but for the most part, I was raised here. And then to jump straight out into the country, uh, especially in a country where I didn't speak the language. Um, it was, it was different. It was an adjustment, but, but it was a lot of fun. And as far as pushing things forward in my career, it was really informative in how ingredient focused the cuisine is because in, in the States you usually use, learn this like codified French method and French cuisine while also ingredient driven in, in some of the like provincial, uh, cuisines. Uh, focuses a lot more on technique so like what can you do with the food that you have as opposed to the Italian approach which is like just eat the food that you have uh, Mm. and don't manipulate it too much and futz with it too much so so less butter basically less butter (laughs) more oil less you know fussy knife work techniques and complex sauces it's more it's more a an opportunity to let quality ingredients shine and uh, you know they've got just such a long tradition of having excellent food and the approaches are different but at the uh, the end result is the same which is just delicious food right which, which is the point right i mean yeah so is that called farm to table or you know a farmer table just means completely different you know farm to table sourcing local um but i also feel like it's also connected no it's like really appreciating the quality of your ingredients and letting them just shine on the plate without needing to, you know, cover them up so much, right? And That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't. I don't know that they have the phrase "farm to table" there, but it's. But it's definitely where. You know, some of the American chefs who sort of pushed that narrative forward picked up the picked up the approach. Right. Okay. So, how long were you there in Italy? In that place in Roca Mariche, I was there for about five months, and then I traveled to like the southernmost tip of the heel of the boot, uh, the region Puglia, and I stayed just outside of the city of Lecce. So that was also extremely remote. And there I connected through a friend with a guy named Giuseppe, who ran a place called Azienda Agricola Picapane. What? And picapane is a is a sort of approach that the southern Italians take because down there they they practice this uh, cucina povera, right? Like a, like the poor person's kitchen or the working person's kitchen, where they react a lot to the limited resources that they have, but they take advantage of the wild foraged ingredients, like a lot of dandelion, wild chicory. Fennel grows wild there, as do a, a, like a lot of herbs that you can find here and there. And they have a very strong, from what I saw in this community, they had a very strong sort of communal, almost like bartering system where 
we would go to a place where they had cows and that's where they would produce uh, mozzarella and then a Puglian specialty, which is called burrata, which is sort of mozzarella stuffed mm -hmm. with mozzarella and cream. And what the folks out there would do is they would come to this farm where that was produced. They also had a very like ingenious but crude oven that was built out of like an iron plate and a bunch of cinder blocks and they would stoke the fire underneath that and bake bread in the oven. And people would bring either a little bit of money or flowers or vegetables that they had grown in exchange for bread and or cheese. And I thought that that was just as cute as heck. So when we went over there, we took a few liters of olive oil, which is what Giuseppe produced on his property. Um, and we would barter with them. But as I was a guest, they walked me through the whole thing and like how to make the bread and how to spin the cheese. Like uh, mozzarella and all of those cheeses fall into a category called pasta filata, which means like spun curd or spun paste. So that just means that when they coagulate the milk, they work it a lot, stretch it out and bring it back together and stretch mm -hmm. it out and bring it back together with warm water to get it to, you know, adhere to itself. So, so that part was great. Another part that was really funny is Giuseppe was a little bit of an armchair anarchist. So I got to hear all about the, the shortcomings of Berlusconi, who was in power at that time. And, and, you know, the, the decline of Italian culture under the, under the thumb of, you know, just laissez-faire capitalism and stuff like it was interesting to listen to it was a lot of fun i thought it was informative and maybe even cute uh, <laughs> uh but yeah that was great and i was there for another four months i think my favorite part of that trip was right maybe a quarter mile down the road from giuseppe's place there were a couple of farmers who raised sheep and they had about 50 head of sheep um that they would milk for the cheese. So I learned a little bit about the cheese making process from that part of the world. So I would wake up and go over there around 4.30 every morning. And uh, I was just impressed with the quantity of marijuana that these people smoked. They, they were, they were high all day long. Yeah. Oh, wow. It was great. But they mixed different herbs into their joints and slips and stuff like that. Uh, but, I mean... Not my bag, but they got it done. It was it was mellow and it was weird, but it was great. So, you know, four and a half months down there and I split. I took a train up to Rome and walked around Rome for a few days. And then I flew to England where I then lived for like the next seven months where I took a where I took a job at like a very posh sort of country. You know, we had we had like a little pub where you could order things like a steak, like steak and chips, steak frites mm -hmm. and fish and chips and stuff like that. And then we had a small uh, 16 seat dining room where we would do uh, a nightly prefix of either three or five courses. And, and that was a, I mean, that was a whole trip unto itself, man. I lived in a staff house. So all of the people that I worked with, I also lived with and they were from everywhere like uh, a Somalian refugee named Mohammed, a young man from Ghana whose name was Alfred, uh, a guy from Algeria named Kareem 
uh, a number of Brits, a bonkers Estonian man named Matisse, who was just just dumbfounded at the fact that the that the English put their fireplaces in the wall as opposed to in the center of the room, and yeah, and that was wild. We were we were an hour outside of London, so my days off every week I would I would go into London and just walk around and look at stuff and eat delicious food. Yeah, I've heard wild. London is uh, one of the most diverse cities of Europe just because it's like surrounded by water and so people have to like fly there versus like where France will have a lot of like Northern Africans who come up there. Yeah. And just because it's like kind of isolated that recently, you know, past hundred years, there's a lot of air travel into London from all types of places. And so it makes London quite a, quite a multicultural hub. Yeah. There's all sorts there. I mean, it's, it's a massive city, like uh, obviously super rich in history and culture and you know, uh, some of the some of the consequences of imperialism, right? Is that it's uh, it's it's multicultural as 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 a direct result of them having gone out and done so many things, and uh, and members of the of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom are allowed free pass back and forth. Uh, so it's great. I think. I think it greatly benefits the city. It's such a it's such a fantastic place to hang out and you know talk with people and eat eat great food and just just see weird stuff, man. It's it's weird how familiar you can be with uh, certain aspects of British culture, but then it's also so much different than uh, than American culture. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, someday I'll be a uh, local voices London, but that's far off, man. We gotta bring it back to uh, the Windy City. So, how did, when did you come back from to Chicago from those trips? Yeah, so I came back. Oh, geez, what was it? Like, uh, I left in two thousand seven, and I came back in late two thousand nine or uh, two thousand ten, and that's when I got my. I was maybe two hours off of the plane and walking through I lived in Logan Square at the time and I was walking through Logan Square and I ran into a friend of mine that I had worked with at Lula and his brother was uh, one of the founding openers of Rootstock and it just happened that he needed to hire a chef and I was back in town so I spoke with them and we talked about food and approach and what you know what it would look like if I came to work there so I got hired to be the chef at Rootstock all the way back then, and uh, it was oh, either wow. 09 or 10. Like 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I stuck around there for three years. I had, uh, I just had a blast. It was such a, it was such a fun time to be a chef because it was sort of, it was sort of the, the like birth of the upscale casual place. When I worked for Jason Hamill and, and his wife Leah at Lula, they, they would talk about like the great high low that we were aiming for so it would be something like you know a hundred and fifty dollar pair of jeans and a pair of dirty chuck taylors and like a white t-shirt uh and at rootstock we like we were able to pull that off it's it's like a top-notch beverage program at this point they've they've received a claim from from just about anybody who's got something nice to say. Why do you say they? Are you still part of it? Or? Well, now I say we, but at that time, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, I'm still getting used to it. Um, yeah, and so now it's it's just this like 
it's this great place like a bat you know it was it was pretty pretty new to emphasize sort of natural wines from smaller producers maybe wines that were meant more to be like drinking and enjoyed uh, either on their own or with food and not so much like revered as these precious treats um and like we took it and ran with it and it really worked out i mean it speaks to the it speaks to the vision that the that the founding founding owners had and they crushed it and they were all restaurant professionals before and they came together and opened the place the kind of place where they always wanted to work where it was you know everybody was on top of their stuff and it was great but there were none of the you know sort of annoying things about a job of course there's always annoying things about a job that's just the nature of it but uh what was built and what I was really happy to be a part of building is just like a great place where more than anything, I think, uh, we're recognized for the quality of the food and beverage that we serve, but then also like the quality of the atmosphere. We're very welcoming. We're really casual, super happy to see people when they come in. And we have a lot of regulars that, that come back time and time again. And, and it's great, you know, on the beverage side, they, they move the menu around a lot. All of the offerings are, are constantly updated. There's some standards that stick around. And then the food is approached the same way. There's there's some days where there's six, five, six, or maybe more new dishes on the menu, and mm. they'll only be around for two days. So we we keep it moving around a lot. And it's it's just it's just so nice to, to be a, to work at a place and to be a part of a place that is just so positive. Uh, especially in restaurants where sometimes it doesn't go so good. Right. Well, who sets that tone at Rootstock? Like, what do you think is the secret? Just a bunch of people who are interested in, like, having a good time and being mellow. Like, uh, we all we all really enjoy everything we do there. It's a blast for me to, to go in and be able to have a drink and, and a bite to eat and... We're, you know, not not to the point where we're like gatekeepers or anything like that, but uh, we draw a certain crowd of people that want to come and be a part of that atmosphere, and and those are those are our coworkers. We're all great friends. I mean, it's it's apparent because when I got married, we closed for two weeks because the entire staff flew all the way out to Maine. They all came. Yeah. They all came. Yeah, it was, it was not, great. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, you just got married two weeks ago and. The staff came out I and mean, that's a sign that you guys are like family um which is great to see for restaurants you know i mean um with the podcast i just treat for me because you know i like to interview artists athletes um but also cuisine is so important as like a third wheel of all that or just like a it's it's you know definitely very important is nutrition and health and you know the restaurant industry so um you know I'd say from what I'm hearing, Rootstock, you guys pretty much have really good relationships with certain farms in the area because I was on your Instagram and I saw you guys are constantly shouting out certain farms or obviously you sell wine to go, meaning you might have a special connection with you know, wineries yeah. to do that. So that's probably one of the secrets. And yeah, what do you have to say about that? Are there some farms you've discovered personally? or? Well, uh, especially with the example that that uh, the staff at Lula has upheld for the last 20 years that they've been open. It's, it, it's always been uh, strengthening 
relationships with local farms, which in turn like gets us as as cooks and chefs and and restaurant professionals access to better things, but it also like strengthens these local communities, which provides a, a like an opportunity to other people, or or at least a glimpse into the fact that it is possible to break out of the the trappings of monoculture you know like corn and soy or just wheat and and things like that but yeah uh, relationships with local farms and local artisans and and just you know individuals of quality who can who can find the better things that there are to offer in a, in a in a local way um that's that's always been at the forefront um we were really fortunate at the sort of the midpoint of the the global health crisis um, to have been connected with a company called the well a, a group that are calling themselves the Ali initiative which is sort of the brainchild of some other people but most notably chef Edward Lee out of uh, Louisville Kentucky but at this point he's he's a huge deal um, and they put together this system wherein they got sponsors and donations and they funneled that money into cities across the country uh, to act as sort of grants towards uh, small or local farms that were then redeemed by restaurants who were either chosen or applied um, in terms of like a credit. So, mm-hmm. And and that's, you know, that's a... It's it's a stretch, but that's not entirely different from regenerative uh, agriculture because it's it's about putting something back in so that what you get mm. is better as a result. And you know we were we were fortunate for that at the time in that in that pandemic sort of pivot that all all of us did. Uh, I was working with a dear friend of mine and uh, a woman named Beth who with her family has a farm in Indiana called Green Acres and helping with deliveries and, uh, you know, being a friend to hang out with and talk to during such a, such a weird, weird period. And it was at her suggestion that, you know, Rootstock uh, became eligible for this Lee Initiative grant, which, you know, shout out Lee Initiative, super grateful for, shout out Beth at Green Acres uh, for putting it together. And yeah, and you know, my relationship with Beth is is stretched back, you know, nearly twenty years, uh, and so many other farmers around here, and and just just people who put their best foot forward with food and want to provide items of great quality to people who can translate that to uh to the guest. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely important to uh, safeguard that connection and, and that occupation even I mean uh, I think it is because of the government helping out a lot with these subsidies otherwise we you know it'd be almost impossible to for these farmers to kind of stay alive and we'd be getting everything from overseas frozen whatever and it's very important to support local agriculture um, and so you know that being said it's Illinois Chicago what what happens in the winter I'm kind of curious like <laughs> uh, well uh, we lean hard on our good friends from California yeah. and, uh, there, there have been a lot of, a lot of like great advances made in, you know, either hydroponic farming or hoop house farming. There's a great, a great mm. farm in Northern Michigan that 
I and a bunch of other restaurants around Chicago and Michigan and Indiana purchased from, and they they focus a lot on hoop houses and. So it's a greenhouse kind of thing yeah. where they heat it up and. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, and they and they use uh, live fuel to heat water that then like moves through, the moves through the place. It's either like you know, radiant heat that keeps them warm or hot water moving through pipes in the soil that keep it from freezing and, and killing the killing the root. Um, yeah, so in the wintertime, you, you pretty much have to stock up during the summer and work on your, like, pickle preserve fermentation game. Um, and The menu changes, yeah. I mean, you adapt a little bit and, yeah. you know, maybe you celebrate different things. Um, but uh, definitely summer is obviously a special time for, you know, true local produce. Um, and so, you know, rootstock currently, uh, do you have any, any, still any ambitions to do anything else? Like, uh, where does your heart lie, you know, in terms of your future? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I really love what I'm doing at rootstock. We're, we're having fun. It's a, it's it's a place that's got legs. I mean, it, we've been open for 12 years now and there's, there's no signs of slowing down and, and we're having a good time. I don't have any grand ambitions to, to, uh, you know, be the, the head of a restaurant empire. I'm happy with what <laughs> I've got. And if it continues the way that it is, you know, then, uh, then I'll be good. I'll, I'll have to hire someone else because I'm getting older and I'm not sure that I can, hang out behind the stove every night for service and, and cook everybody's food. But hopefully, hopefully when the time comes, I'll be able to find someone who's just as enthusiastic and passionate about, about making good food and, and, you know, being a part of something that's fun and contributing and making it better as a result of their contributions. So hopefully we'll get there, but I'm not thinking that far ahead at the mm. moment. As like you shouldn't. I mean, honestly, a lot of the, my favorite chefs, uh, like in, for example, in Miami, we have a, a pizza king, uh, Giovanni. He's like makes the best uh, Neapolitan pizzas. He he so loves being in that restaurant and that family vibe. That you know, Shakira came through the other the other month, and like he gets all these stars coming through, and like he loves that space so much that he hasn't really like branched out and. You know, it would be a whole different experience for him to try to, you know, launch a chain. So I think it's a beautiful thing for, you know, more and more of the world to have this detail of culture and, and, and diversity and, and all these, you know, one spot sh shops, you know, that are that are really, truly unique. And it's beautiful. And I think it's the future. Um, so that being said, what do you where do you source from when you cook at home? Like, say you're not at the restaurant, like say you're at home, you're cooking like what? What do you source then? Well, you know, my my interests sort of change and flutter. It's like a grocery shopping for my wife and I is an all-day affair because we need to go to you know, the Jungbu market in the in the sort of like Avondale neighborhood, which is a, like a Korean grocery store. Whole, whole lot of stuff we we stop there there's like the dill pickle co-op where we stop whole foods happens and then up on argyle we go to uh dynam grocery 
and that's where we pick up a lot of a lot of fun stuff and from there we go even further north to middle east grocery and then we go further north to patel brothers so it takes us forever to go grocery shopping because we just buy we buy small quantities of many different things and that's yeah. sort of how we build our our meal planning for the week most often we just rely on like I eat a lot of cheese sandwiches, uh, you know, and we try to get that stuff from around when we can. Uh, to be frank, there's a lot of times where food that gets ordered for rootstock makes its way into my refrigerator right, because, you know, you have to take advantage where you can. Um, best baguettes, best or best bread, uh, best bakers that you can shout out. Wow. Um, there's so many people that are doing such good work. Like my friends Ben and Sarah have launched this sort of a pop up while they look for a brick and mortar space, and they're they call themselves Loaf Lounge. They make great bread and they make lovely sandwiches. Lately, they've been popping up at Supercana, which is in Logan Square. They did a pop up at uh, Bang Bang Pie in Logan Square, so they're great. The bread that we purchase at Rootstock we get from uh, Middlebrow, which you know, I've got I've got a pretty long history with with one of the people involved there, a guy named Pete. Uh, so they have Bungalow by Middlebrow, which is sort of their brew pub, and then regular Middlebrow where they produce beers and sell them in like you know specialty stores and markets and stuff like that. They're expanding, and then they have a bakery down on the south side in a in a place called the Plant, and they make fantastic bread. Uh, Greg Wade over at Public and Quality Bread is is Greg Wade at Public and Quality <laughs> Bread. I mean, it's it's fantastic right, stuff. Yeah. Check it out. yeah, bread's one thing I love to outsource because it takes so much care and uh, it's definitely complements every meal. And um, but it's definitely you know I really respect the best bakers and the time it, it takes. And um, but yeah, at the same time, like I'm with you on the more you become sensitive or uh, have standards for your food, you start going to a lot of places to source. Like I have a pita spot, I have like a croissant spot, I have like a Neapolitan pizza spot for Neroso. Uh, I have like a lot, a lot of spots, um, which I think everyone should, you know, I think everyone should get, develop uh, an etiquette or a standard of their nutrition to the level that they do have to go around, you know, maybe not, you know, spend all day on a Saturday doing that, but you can get delivered some things and, and I actually use the freezer for a lot of my breads because bread actually freezes pretty well yeah, it does. and then you thaw it and you put it in the toaster oven and um, it works pretty well. So yeah, Chicago is, uh, what would you say Chicago's claim to fame is for uh, culinary space besides the hot dogs yeah, and, sure. and all that? Uh, other, otherwise, what, what would you say? Uh, well, I think... I think a lot of people lately have really raised the profile. You know, you've got uh, brilliant, brilliant chefs who who do super intricate, super detail focused, and super delicious food. Like uh, Noah Sandoval at Oriole, and he's also a partner with like the the amazing Julia Mimos at uh, Kumiko and Kiko. One of the best meals I had was at Kiko, uh, which is their sort of like downstairs eight seat restaurant uh, prepared by the two chefs who were doing it. Um, so I think that 
I think that Chicago's thing is it's such a progressive city for dining and it is expensive but it doesn't choke out the competition like you can find fantastic neighborhood places that are focused on the same sort of like uh integrity of the food that's sourced the technique that's used to do it making stuff delicious but there's not there's not a neighborhood in chicago that doesn't have a great restaurant and i think and I think that's a big part of it. And it doesn't always, you know, it doesn't always have to be like a big fancy thing. Uh, there's there's a brother and sister that are in Pilsen right now with a, a place called Ginkau Eat Rice. And they're making just stellar, stellar Thai food that they grew up making with their family and eating in their home. Uh, yeah, man, that that's what makes Chicago rad is there's so many restaurants all over the place and the vibe is cool you know there's there's three star alinea which is world renowned for what it is but i think that they get short shrift for what they do i think that they're one of the best restaurants in the world and uh and then there's also you know like carnitas europan which is just a family that's been doing the same thing for a long time and they nail it and that's and that's it and there's nothing fancy or pretentious and it's yeah that's it it's it's great it's a community it's varied and you know it's pretty rad yeah pretty rad i believe i agree that uh i think maybe part of it is you know maybe in the winter i guess it's less farm to table but food is still very important you know as we know chicagoans love to drink uh, <laughs> But also in the winter, the meals are like one of the highlights of the day. I mean, they're the highlights even in the summer. They're the highlights, but there's a bit less distractions in the winter, and uh, food is just very important, you know. And, uh, and so uh, it acquires a lot of uh, time and 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 thought and 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 a bit of uh, detail. And and I think Chicago brings, uh, you know, competes pretty well with the, the big cities in the U.S. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah, I mean, um, so yeah, I mean. You just shouted out a bunch of awesome places, which uh, I'm pretty happy about. I get places to try. Uh, I saw that uh, at your wine bar, it says no reservations, though. So how do, how do I... You just have to get lucky, or...? First come, first serve. Uh, that's it. Um, you know, I can't speak to as to why that's the case. Uh, it, it conveys the vibe. And that's it. So what we've been experiencing this summer with with the the reopening and sort of the return or at least the establishment of a new normal is people are super eager to get out. And Humble Park is beautiful, man. Like it's it's one of the I live in the neighborhood. I live just a short walk away from Rootstock. Um, and we've got great neighbors who are super mellow about the fact that we're a relatively busy place and when we do go on a wait we sort of will bring tables out of the dining room and set them up mm. out on the sidewalk so people have a place okay. to rest their drink and if the wait gets too long we'll probably pour you a little complimentary kava or something like that oh, to right. smooth over uh to to smooth over having to wait to sit down to eat something, I guess. I think what happens is it becomes more of like a community family vibe because you're not getting all those people who are just like yelping around and, and Google mapping everything and trying to just get reservations. So like 
you end up being people who like know like if they come at a certain time there might be a little wait but they'll be fine and you know you kind of draw like more of a regular crowd i think yeah there's tons of there's tons of regulars it's great and then there's also tons of like first time people that come in and most of the time they really enjoy themselves uh yeah most of the time it's 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 generally a really positive reaction that everyone has when they come in but the wait time can get a little a little long and maybe even a little bit of uh, of an annoying situation but you know if you stick around it'll be a good time or just show up at five o'clock all right all right well i'll have to text you when a good time is to come by (laughs) but i'm definitely going to come check it out um a couple last questions we always do uh, Andrew, what's one uh, good like healthy habit that you have um, that you can share with everybody? Ooh, that's Even, good. That's a that's a big focus in my life right now is is working on establishing healthier habits. Uh, I right now a big focus is breathing exercises. Mm. It's sort of maybe like cognitive behavioral behavioral fear uh, therapy where you know kitchens are pretty high stress life over the last how long 18 months has been high stress and i'm working a lot on focusing on my breath taking a step back cutting out all of the cutting back all of the you statements and focusing Mm. more on the i statements taking responsibility in charge and yeah i feel like that's a great advice right there is to say um, you did this, you did it. Like, that's just very, that's like a lower way to speak at people. It's yeah. like, uh, it's like a very assumptative or like, uh, you're making a lot of judgments when you, when you talk like that yeah. versus taking kind of responsibility of the situation. And, uh, and I'm influenced a lot by, by friends that I have around me. Like a, a lot of my friends are, you know, we're getting older, we're turning, you know, 40 or 38 or something like that and people are sort of pulling back and looking at their lives and saying like all right great like everything is fun i'm finally getting the hang of being an adult uh (laughs) you know 18 years after it happened like how can i how can i do this better what i think about a lot is like how could i be a better friend or a better Mm. partner or a better brother or a better son you know and uh and i you know i don't point the finger at myself for any of my shortcomings but i acknowledge them and i i try to acknowledge them to other people and in hopes that i can move past it and and that maybe they can offer me a little bit of advice on what it was that i may have said that didn't come out right or you know like I recently had a friend that was like, cool, man, you should call me more. Mm, I know that you're busy and I feel like I can't call you. Just carve out 20 minutes a week and we'll just have a phone call. And so, yeah. Yeah. I have a time in like Mondays sometimes I'll have like a block where I just call a bunch of random friends from my life, all the different cities I've lived in. It's like if you set aside that time block, like you're guaranteed one of them will answer, right? If you... If you just try three or four and they're busy people and they don't answer, sometimes you can be like a little sad, but everyone's got a Rolodex of friendships that they go back. So if you just pause and set that time in your week to call random friends that you've had great times with, then you'll pick, someone will pick up and it'll just be 
awesome. Like you just back to old times. And so that's a that's like a, something you can schedule in your week. And for busy people, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's hard to to always, you know, be answering phone calls. Like I, I rarely answer phone calls actually, <laughs> but uh, it's good to set time for things, and yeah. it's very important. Um, so that's great. Uh, and last question, you already shouted out so much. Who is maybe a, a, a role model or someone in the Chicago scene that you really look up to? Besides maybe uh, even even your mentors at previous restaurants, but like in the whole landscape of Chicago, who is someone you look up to? Maybe also even outside of, of the food space, maybe even. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, we we got a lot in the last, we got a lot in the last year. It was, it was a, there were things that we had to deal with as a whole, and there were things that we had to deal with and reckon with individually. And I've seen a number of friends and some people who aren't friends, but were still in similar circles, make dramatic changes in their life for the better, which is not always easy, you know? And I watched, I watched friends really step up to, to, organize in their communities and to provide access to just myriad things that people would need, whether it's counseling or sundries or, you know, just hang it out and being, and being a voice and being an advocate for other people, you know, and one, one guy that I think did a great job was my buddy Dwayne and unfortunately he passed away about two months ago but when things got wacky with the whole world he you know he stepped up and he was there for his friends and he was there for his daughter and he volunteered a lot of his time and so you know now that he's gone it was it's sad but it wasn't uh it wasn't you know, a tragedy. He, he fell ill and he, and he succumbed. But, uh, so now through him and the example that he set and the time that he gave to people, uh, I'm going to try and I've reached out and, and to do the same thing with, uh, with an organization that he worked with, which sort of provides outreach and job training to, uh, you know, members of society who have recently been released from incarceration. Oh, that's great. What's it called? Back on my feet? No. <laughs> no, man, I'm blanking on the name. And I feel so silly because it's on the tip of I'll put of it my in the description. You'll tell me later. But yeah. uh, Back on My Feet is one that helps people who are homeless. But I definitely people coming out of incarceration definitely need a, a big support system as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so these are all, yeah, amazing causes. And, you know, that's what diversity does to us. So. The best part is that you're you're eager to keep improving and, and becoming a better person and that's what each of us should never st- stop to try to be a better person and keep getting better so i think you're a quite the inspiration andrew i really appreciate you coming man. i'm working on it yeah thanks thanks for taking time to talk to me it's 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 been mellow i feel like i said too much but that was kind no, of no no it was very deep and it was also very uh very unique as well and, and hearing about your travel which you know how powerful travel is um to kind of open up people's and and that's something that uh, we all hope to kind of encourage more of. So it was a very awesome condo, man. Thanks for coming. Yeah. I'm going to come by the, the restaurant to take a picture of you at some point. Cool. Um, and I'll be then, there. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to hang out with you over there. All right. Sounds good. All right, brother.